0: of July 1968. Police attend a house in Glenfield, New South Wales to arrest a man in relation to car thefts in the area. But he wasn't going to give himself up that easy. Armed with a gun, he told them he would shoot it out. This is the Glenfield Siege with Wally Mellish. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. I hope you're well. Last week's Dog Day Afternoon episode was a bit of a break from rape and murder, and this week I thought I'd bring you a story that happened just down the road from where I grew up, and it really is a strange one. It's the 2nd of July 1968. The location is Glenfield, New South Wales, Australia. Now, Glenfield is, well, at least was, an outer suburb of Sydney. In 1968, it had a train station a few local shops and the start of the quarter-acre block suburban sprawl that would take over the area in the next few decades. Some parts, like the residences along Glenfield Road that led up to the crossroads on the way to Liverpool or Camden along the Hume Highway, well, they were on bigger blocks, like one-acre blocks or so. So you could say that in 1968, Glenfield was a semi-rural suburb in fact, it is or was the home of Hurlston Agricultural High School, which is next to the train station. Now, that's on a 112 hectare or 277-acre campus. They've got cows and sheep and all that sort of stuff, real agricultural stuff. Now, Glenfield Road, <laughs> now it's being infected by rows and rows of McMansions, and it really is such a shame. Anyway, I could go on forever, describing the area back in the day. And let's get back to the 2nd of July, 1968. Police attend a residence at around 10am on Glenfield Road in relation to a bunch of car thefts and car part thefts. They're looking for the occupant, 22-year-old Wally Mellish, small-time crim, who lives with his 19-year-old girlfriend Beryl Muddle and her 11-week-old son Le- Leslie in a run-down fibro house. Now, they, <laughs> you know what fibro is. It's that shitty asbestos-type material that they used to build houses with. Anyway, Detective Ray Millington, he knocked on the door and he asked for Wally. Well, Wally wasn't going to have any of it. He told him to go to hell. And he discharged a shot from his rifle into the air. Now, the, the coppers ran for their lives. And then they had to call for backup, of course. So, the right squad were called. And little did anyone know that this was going to be the start of an eight-day siege. Of which sydney ciders had never seen before. So... Off to the side of the house, Detective Millington, while waiting for the right squad to arrive, he shouted out to Mellish to give himself up and release his girlfriend and her baby. Now Mellish, he just kept yelling out the window. He said, like, go to hell. I'm not giving up. Piss off. About 30 minutes or so later, 30 riot squad officers surrounded the building. Still, Mellish refused to give himself up. Now Detective Sergeant. R. Nixon and Detective Inspector R. Williams of the CIB, they called Mellish on the phone and they tried to talk him out. Now, Mellish warned the police that any attempt to fire tear gas into the house would result in the death of the woman and the baby. At this stage, traffic could pass freely along Glenfield Road, but that was quickly sealed off after Mellish, at around 1.10 p.m., he fired his 22 rifle over the heads of police trying to take fingerprints off a car parked at the rear of the premises. Now Detective Nixon and another one, Arantz, called through loud hailers that he had until 3 p.m. to free the hostages, give himself up, or the police would move in. Now Mellish replied that he would release his girlfriend Beryl and her baby, and her baby, on the proviso that police cleared out from the area and left a car running in the front yard. The plans to move in on Mellish at 3pm were cancelled after Detective Superintendent Ferguson, he took over control of the situation. Now he was ordered by the police commissioner at the time, Norm Allen, to deal with the situation and he decided not to storm the building as he was sure there would be fatalities. At this stage, Mellish had been contacted over the phone about a dozen times. Now, Mellish had told them that if they moved in on him, he would shoot the girl and the baby, then take out as many police as he could. A call from his father and his former psychiatrist failed to get Mellish to give himself up. Mellish's mum, who lived in the next suburb, Macquarie Fields, she attended the site but was unable to talk by phone she was just too upset. As the afternoon dragged on and it started to get dark, there was a shot, this time from a 303 rifle when Detective Superintendent Ferguson walked across the front of the house. Eventually, Mellish let Ferguson and an army chaplain, Reverend Patton, to come inside to talk a truce. While inside, Mellish sat in a lounge chair with a shotgun on his lap and Beryl sat with a baby on another lounge. Mellish was restless. He'd be getting up and walking around and sitting down again. Mellish asked the Reverend if he could marry Beryl, but but the Reverend told him he needed seven days' notice to perform a service. Also, he said it was a bit awkward when you're holding your would-be bride hostage. So when the detective and the Reverend left, an impromptu press conference was held in which Ferguson told reporters not to try to take photos as flash bulbs may trigger Mellish, especially if he does end up walking out of the building. Cars would have their headlights off for a 200-metre distance up and down the road. He also said he'd arranged a truce with Mellish, that they would not move on him overnight unless he tried to leave the house as he did not want to jeopardise the lives of the woman, her baby or even Mellish. It was a peaceful and incident-free night. The next day, the Police Commissioner Allen and Superintendent Ferguson negotiated the terms for Mellish to give himself up. Mellish was told that all outstanding warrants against him, including the one for firing at police the day before, would not be executed and that he would be taken for medical treatment. Mellish agreed, but with one extra demand. Mellish told the police that if he was able to marry his girlfriend, Beryl, that after the ceremony, he would put down his guns and give up. So Beryl's parents were contacted, and they gave permission for their daughter to marry Mellish. The deputy registrar, Mr. Jay Keenan, waived the seven-day requirement for the marriage certificate, and at about 3.15pm, the Commissioner of Police, Allen and the Chief of the CIB, Detective Superintendent Small, walked into the house with the Reverend Patton, and so Wally Mellish could marry his sweetheart, Beryl Muddle. Totally fucking bizarre. Anyway, Mellish was wearing blue jeans and a white shirt. Beryl wore a yellow dress with her hair neatly combed and tied with black velvet lace. The event took around 23 minutes. The Reverend told Mellish that if he didn't put his gun down during the ceremony, that it would not be valid in the sight of God. The Commissioner and Superintendent assured Mellish they would not go in, so the guns were put down and the wedding went ahead. So romantic. Mellish asked if when they left, if they could go down the shop for him and get some munchies. The Reverend and police, who were un- unharmed, and acted as witnesses at the wedding, they left Mellish and his new bride. They went down the shop and returned with two bottles of Coke, sandwiches, some chalky bickies and a bottle of milk. But at 8pm, Mellish told them he wasn't coming out and wanted 12 more hours until 8am in the morning so he could be with his new wife. Ferguson told reporters that Mellish was a psychopath and he always kept Beryl and the baby between them as they talked. He said that as soon as you think he'd calm down and saw a reason, he would turn 180 degrees and lose all of it. He said that at all times he was staring down the barrel of a shotgun. It was like looking down Wynyard Railway Tunnel and that Mellish looked more agitated than the day before and that he'd probably not slept. He went on saying that not only was Mellish armed with a 22 rifle, a 303 rifle, and a shotgun, but he also had a pistol with a silencer. With police still surrounding the house, the siege went into day three. Okay, so you think that was some surreal craziness. Now let's get into day three events. At 8 a.m., Mellish goes back on his promise to give himself up. Instead, he tells police that he wants a transistor radio and a high-powered armor light rifle with 200 rounds of ammo. I mean, surely, surely they're not going to give him that. I mean, well, well, you see, Mellish wanted it so that he was armed the same as the riot squad outside and wouldn't be outgunned when he gave himself up, a sort of don't shoot me, I'll shoot you, so, with the same type of weapon. Madness. Well, at 2.30 p.m., they took him a radio and they took him and get this, an armor rifle with 200 rounds of steel-jacketed ammo. They took it into the house and gave it to him. Now, I'm not too sure if it was the M16 or AR-15, but as you know, once more military, once more civilian, but they're pretty much similar weapons. They said they had to do it as he threatened to kill Beryl and the kid. I mean, who's in control here? They also gave the baby a pink bunny rug. How's that? That's very good of them. Malish told police that he'd set up hand grenades around all the windows of the house. Now, back in the day... We didn't really have hand grenades hanging around, but we probably had that many guns in certain houses. But this bloke's got hand grenades. Where the hell's he got those from? Anyway, during the day, there were several phone calls, but even with Mellish's mum pleading with him to give up at 9.30pm, he wouldn't. And the siege went into its fourth day after another peaceful night. Now, reporters and police (laughs) by now really had settled in. They were lighting campfires to keep out of the coal. They had barbecues going, the whole deal. And in the morning, day four of the siege, the milkman who was doing his deliveries, he was stopped by police. Now, the milkman protested saying he'd never missed a delivery in his life. And so the police on duty, they ended up doing all the milk deliveries for him. So police decided to cut off all food supplies to mellish this day, but of course, still provide food for little Leslie, and who was now approaching three months old. Police also reported that they were entering a dangerous stage of the siege, where the mental stability of Mellish was in question, as he was drinking heavily. Psychiatrist advised police not to do anything different to what they're doing now, as Mellish had probably reached the peak of his depression. The use of tear gas was not recommended, as little Leslie had bronchitis, let alone what Mellish would do if it was fired into the house. This, being (laughs) a very unique situation, required a very unique way to solve it. The Premier at the time, Robert Askin, said, Commissioner Allen is trying to resolve this dangerous problem without loss of life and has considered it necessary to pursue unusual measures. If he succeeds... Most people will heave a sigh of relief and will not worry too much about the unusual measures. By nightfall, the lights in the house failed and although Beryl called police and told them they had to be back on in 20 minutes, by midnight the lights were still out. Also, requests for more food and cigarettes were also turned down. Police were starting to become weary of the situation And they started trying to regain control. Now, just a question to the smokers or vapors out there, what would you give up, your nicotine fix or food? Yeah, I know what the answer is. So, as the siege entered day six, Mellish seemed less anxious with psychiatrists advising that he had probably peaked and was more likely to calm down and be more reasonable. Police had taken no canned food into the home but had taken food that police had prepared from the barbecue they set up to feed themselves. Reverend Patton had seen Mellish drink three glasses of wine when he went to visit him and he said he had half-gallon flagon on the table. Patton said Mrs Mellish was keeping the house neat and tidy. Police were willing to just let the siege play out, not to make any moves Just wait until Mellish finally had enough and gave himself up. So a rather boring day six wrapped up. Well, in the early hours of day seven of the siege, police decided to throw rocks on the roof of the house so that Mellish couldn't get any sleep. In the morning, Beryl rang radio station 2SM and pleaded for the electricity to be be fixed so she could warm milk for her baby. Now the call went like this. Hello? Good morning,
1: Steve Raymond here.
2: Well listen, they didn't tell you there wasn't any electricity for me to make milk for my baby. He's starving.
1: You're Mrs Mellish, are you?
2: Tell the public my baby is starving and under no circumstances is Wally going to let my baby out.
1: Detective Superintendent Ferguson told us yesterday that under no circumstance would he allow the baby to go without food
2: under no circumstances is Wally going to let us out. They said last night they were not going to put the electricity on. They said they were going to put it on this morning and it's still not on. My baby is screaming.
1: I can't believe Mr. Allen would back down on the promise that the baby would not go without food or anything the baby wanted.
2: But look, I'm not lying. He said to me, he said that he's not going to let anyone come up here to put fuses in or whatever you call
1: it. We'll contact the police and see what they say. How is Wally, by the way? Oh, you
2: know, he won't let us
1: out. How do you feel? There's been a lot of talk about you and whether or not you are being held hostage or whether you are all with Wally. Well,
2: I'm being held hostage.
1: Do you think Wally will eventually come out peacefully and receive the treatment he needs? At the
2: moment, he said, He's not going
1: to. Is there anything you want the people to know? I
2: would just like the police to go away and leave us alone because that's the only thing he wants.
0: (laughs) Beryl, she sounds a little bit fed up. Okay, so police refused to send an electrician in while Mellish had firearms. Instead, they erected floodlights to light up the outside of the house. Police were getting very weary at this point with reports that some had been suspended for leaving their posts. But with little activity during the day, you can imagine after a week, it would be difficult to stay alert and focused. After seven days holed up in the Glenfield house, police were sure Mellish was starting to indicate that he was going to give himself up. After 172 hours At 3.09pm on the 9th of July, Wally carrying baby Leslie and flanked by Beryl, the Reverend Patton, Superintendent Ferguson and Commissioner Allen, well, he walked out of the house. So, this was in the end a great outcome for all. Wally, Beryl and Leslie the baby all got out of the situation alive. Also, there were no police or any other bystanders hurt. Twice, Wally tried to put his arms around Beryl and kiss her, but she turned her head around to avoid it. She also told police she probably couldn't put up with him as a husband and she was going to get a divorce. And she did. A bit of an awkward moment though, when, yeah, darling, give us a kiss and she's just sort of, uh, 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 sort of like what my cat does. While he told police he wanted to go to Ingleburn Army Camp to enlist for Vietnam to make up for the trouble he caused. Now, Beryl and the baby, after getting some food, well, they went off with her family. The army rejected Mellish, and so the police carted him off to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital near Newcastle to try to get him declared insane. Now, they wouldn't declare him insane, but they did hold him, until the 19th of April, 1969. Now, he had been let out on weekend release during the last three months of his stay. When he was released, police turned up to arrest him, but he'd already left. Now, the medical superintendent of Morissette Psychiatric Hospital, Dr. Gordon, he said he told police the date he was being released. He said the detectives were aware of this and he appears to have bypassed them. Now, what I really think's going on here, I think the police, they wanted to make sure Mellish wasn't there so they didn't have to deal with him. Now, no charges were ever laid in relation to the siege or the firing of his weapon over the heads of the police or even the original reason they went to his house, the car theft issues. They were never acted on. The government just let it go. Mellish had played them as fools basically and I think they just wanted him to go away. Well, Mellish hitched to Queensland where he'd meet his future wife Lorraine in Cairns and he worked his way around the country doing odd jobs like painting houses but he also restored antiques. He would have a run-in with police once more when Mellish led them on a high-speed pursuit. He was able to outrun the cops, ditch his car and sawn off rifle and hide in the bush. But he was arrested three weeks later when 20 detectives stormed a farmhouse he was sleeping in at Camden. Which, again, that's not far away from all this. Convicted of demanding money with menaces, he was sentenced to three years. Now this is such a crazy story. You couldn't make this shit up. So they made a movie about it in 1997 called Mr. Reliable starring Colin Friels and Jacqueline McKenzie. In an interview by Matt Condon at the Sydney Morning Herald just before opening night, Mellish said, I had to delay the siege as long as possible so it would get into the eyes of the public. Only then I knew it would be safe to come out. I don't have any regrets. I'm really glad to this day that I had the guts to face what I wanted to face. What happened, happened. If they charged me, charged the house, I would have had to do something. I think people knew I was standing up for my rights. Now, in regards to his shady past, he said, I'm totally different now. In one lifetime, I was a criminal. But in this lifetime, I'm a different person. After travelling the country house painting, Melly settled down with Lorraine and their two sons not far from Glenfield in Raby. Now, he told Sydney Morning Herald reporter Gavin Cantlin that, Jobs weren't easy to come by. He said, I do anything I can put me hands to. I can tell you one thing. I'm not on the dole. That's social security for anybody who doesn't know what the dole is. Anyway, I'm not on the dole. That's one place you'll never get me on. I've got a bit more guts and pride than that. I've been battling along the last 20 years. I think we're all meant to battle. Now, since the car chase and the three-year stint in the joint... Mellish, with the influence of his wife and children, was able to go straight and stay out of prison. Probably not many people remember Wally now, but he was seen as the guy that stuck it to the man. Maybe not in the same vein as Ned Kelly, but close though. Now, Wally died in March of 2016. The Reverend Patton, he moved into obscurity. Now, being a reverend, I don't know what that means. Commissioner Allen, he died naturally, but Superintendent Ferguson killed himself with his service revolver at police headquarters. Now, however, according to James Morton and Susanna Lebez in their book, Gangland Queensland, they sort of say, and I paraphrase a little bit of this... Detective Superintendent Donald Ferguson was killed by a bullet from his own service revolver in the lavatory of his office at Sydney Police Administration Centre in Campbell Street. Ferguson was under pressure from a prostitution investigation and was rumoured to have been interested in talking to investigators. It was widely rumoured that Ferguson was in fact murdered by Fred Cray, a crooked cop and his ex-partner. Now, if you remember the Winita Nielsen episode I did ages ago, Fred Craig came up in that as one of the crooked cops. But back then, hey, New South Wales cops were the best money could buy. So this really was a hometown case for me. It was minutes from where I grew up and it was just down the road from where I was living at the time. And when, when he moved and settled to Rabie, well, that was maybe a five-minute blast down the old Hume Highway, turned left into Rabie Road, and you're almost there. Really quick when you're doing it in the two-door falcon. Look, the government and the police of the day, they were very corrupt, and they had their own reasons for how they handled this crazy situation. And that's, well, that is another story for another time. So, Islanders, the last two shows have been real blasts from the past, brought to you by the lovely Patreon and PayPal people who help fund the show and fund my newspapers.com subscription. It's funny, when you go through all these old newspapers reading reading the ads that are next next to all these news clippings, how times have changed. Some ads would cause a Twitter storm today. And when you read some of the news stories happening at the the time, look, Vietnam was in full swing while he was in the news sad you read a few things like how a young conscript was killed after stepping on a mine and all these guys were injured it's some of it's so sad It's, it's so long ago too but still there's probably someone who still remembers that person fondly look i won't mention any of the names but there were plenty just like him during that time it's some of the spooky stuff when you start reading all these old newspapers all the things that are around the event you're actually looking at Anyway, back to the Patreon shout outs, and this week we have a couple of mentions. We have Angela R. Thank you so much, Angela, much appreciated. And I've got to get this right, I think this is right. Dale Pennyquick upped his pledge, boom, fuckalunga to both of you. It's very much appreciated, as I said. And if you too want to help fund the island, go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island, where for as little as a dollar a month you can help out. If you don't like the idea of a monthly thing but still want to help out you can go to paypal.me forward slash true crime island. buy me a beer if you like it really does help for all the things during the year there's the hosting subscriptions books even flights to go and see barney and tara bloody murder a couple of times a year i know a few of you listeners listen to them as well and love the combo shows it is a little bit different it is a bit of fun for me as well so not everybody likes it but you know it's only every now and then Also, there's truecrimeisland.threadless.com where you can get t-shirts, mugs, all that sort of stuff. If you want to buy something there and you have any problem with it at all, email their help section with your order number and CC me in as well. They want you to be happy and so do I. We have had a few printing issues here and there in the past, so I do need to know what's going on. I will be announcing a limited edition t-shirt soon, so look out for that. Now, this YouTube thing, YouTube will get a hard launch early in the new year. I did a bit with it today. I do have some content up there at the moment, so please subscribe if you wish. I will do some giveaways when it does launch. I noticed EH Olden Wagon just subbed. Good to see the Holden fans subbing to a Ford fans channel. If you want to contact me for show requests or anything, email me, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. It is the best way rather than trying to use social media. Although you can find the island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. In Instagram, Instagram. One thing as well, I don't put my transcripts up on the web. But as Nico emailed me about one of uh, their friends who was hard of hearing last week, I will email scripts if requested. If I get enough demand, I might try to sort, of, sort out a way to do a, like a newsletter thing or something like that. Well, that's about it. I don't think I forgot anything, but I probably will after finishing editing. I've been your host, Camba. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, Vakalanda.